Welcome back to USMLE Listen Microbiology Chapter 2. On this episode, we will go over some crucial USMLE related facts on bacterial pathogenicity, bacterial genetics, and the different toxins. We're going to group those exotoxins and endotoxins together on function, mode of action, and their role in disease. Furthermore, we will provide some USMLE questions and answer explanations. As always, please email us at usmlelisten at gmail.com for your questions, anything you need cleared, or suggestions on how we can improve and initiate your auditory learning for the USMLE Step 1, please let us know. Sources for USMLE include First Aid, Osmosis, UWorld, and Kaplan Study Guides. Enjoy! Let's group bacteria together in terms of their pathogenicity and infectivity and toxicity major mechanisms for it. Let's start with colonization, adherence. So bacteria have to adhere to cell surfaces. Pili and fimbrae, the primary mechanism belongs to gram-negative cells. For tachoic acids, the primary mechanism are gram-positive cells. Adhesins, colonizing factor adhesins, pertussis toxin, and hemagglutinins. IgA proteases, cleaved FC portion may coat bacteria and bind them to cellular FC receptors. The IgA proteases are... Let's remember Shin, Strep, Haemophilus influenza, and Neisseria. Importance is the partial adherence to inert materials such as biofilms by Staph epidermidis and Streptococcus mutans or Strept viridans. Some bacteria avoid immediate destruction by host cell defense systems. Antiphagocytic surface components inhibit phagocytic uptake. So these capsules, so the capsules are, remember, please shine my skis, please for Pseudomonas aeruginosa, Strep pneumoniae, H. influenzae, Neisseria meningitidis, E. coli, Salmonella capsiella, and Strep agalactae or group B. strep. Please shine my skis for your capsule bacterias. Another one is Neisseria gonorrhea. The pili for Neisseria gonorrhea avoids immediate destruction by whole cell defense because with the pili, gonorrhea are able to stop the neutrophils. The neutrophils can't get to it because there's so much pili around the Neisseria gonorrhea. Staph aureus has the A protein, and what the Staph aureus A protein does, as we remember, is it hides the Staph aureus itself, binding the FC region of IgG and preventing phagocytosis. Bacteria can also be grouped by its hunting and gathering needed nutrients. So we're talking about citrophores here that steal or chelate and import iron. It competes with transferrin and can steal from transferrin. Bacteria that have citrophores include citrophore enterobactin for E. coli, citrophore bacillibactin for bacillus subtilis and bacillus anthracis, the citrophore vibriobactin for vibrio cholera, and we should all be aware of the Citrophore pyoverdin, which is, of course, in Pseudomonas aeruginosa. There's also a Citrophore called Yersinia bactin for Yersinia pestis. Antigenic variation is also important. They change surface antigens to avoid immune destruction. For example, Neisseria gonorrhea have pili and outer membrane proteins. Trypanosoma brucei rodiense and Trypanosoma brucei gambiense always change its glycoprotein, so they have a face variation. Enterobacteriaceae have capsular and flagellar antigens may or may not be expressed, and of course HIV has antigenic drift. 
The ability to survive intracellularly, of course, is very important. So evading intracellular killing by professional phagocytic cells allows intracellular growth. Mycobacterium tuberculosis survives by inhibiting phagosome and lysosome fusion. Listeria quickly escapes the phagosome into the cytoplasm before phagosome-lysosome fusion. Invasins. Invasins are surface proteins that allow an organism to bind to and invade normally non-phagocytic human cells, escaping the immune system. So the best studied invasin is on a bacteria called Yersidia pseudotuberculosis, an organism that causes diarrhea. Damage from viruses is largely from intracellular replication, so either cells transform them or in the case of latent viruses may do so with no noticeable damage. Another way that bacteria are able to infect is through type 3 secretion systems and type 3 secretion systems are very common in gram-negative bacteria. They tunnel from the bacteria to the host themselves, especially the host cell macrophages, and it delivers the bacterial toxin directly into the host cell. So what you can see type 3 secretion systems in E. coli, Salmonella, Yersinia, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, and Chlamydia. One important way the bacteria can cause disease is inflammation or immune mediated damage. So we can see that with cross-reaction bacteria antibodies with tissue antigens that cause disease such as rheumatic fever as an example. Pop quiz, rheumatic fever is caused by what bacteria? Bacteria is group A strep, otherwise known as streptopyogenes, caused by cross-reactivity of the antibody. The cross-reactivity is a type of type 2 hypersensitive reaction, and what we call that is molecular mimicry. Molecular mimicry is caused by the M protein of streptopyogenes. We're also looking at delayed hypersensitivity and granulomatose response simulated by the presence of intracellular bacteria responsible for neurologic damage in leprosy, cavitation in tuberculosis, and fallopian tube blockage resulting in infertility from chlamydia. Pelvic inflammatory disease. Important to bring up the peptidoglycan tachoic acid, which are large fragments of gram positive cells. They serve as structural toxins released when cells die and are chemotactic for neutrophils. Once the neutrophils get in there, you have your inflammation and immune mediated damage. Sometimes bacteria or parasites, they cause physical damage directly, and it could be from swelling from a fixed space damaging tissues, for example, such as meningitis and cystocercosis caused by what? Parasite, tinea solium. Large size organism may also cause problems, for example, your ascaris lumbricoides blocking the bile duct. Aggressive tissue invasion from entomoeba histiolytica causes intestinal ulceration and releases intestinal bacteria compounding your problems. Amoebiasis. I've had amoebiasis and it is not fun. Before we go into endotoxins and exotoxins, we're going to first go over bacterial genetics. The first word that we need to remember is transformation. Competent bacteria can bind and import short pieces of the environmental or naked bacterial chromosomal DNA from bacterial cell lysis and then transfer them to newly transferred genes called transformation. It's a feature of many bacteria, especially our shin organisms, shin, streptomoniae, H. influenzae type B, and Neisseria. Adding deoxyribonuclease degrades naked DNA and they prevent transformation. Can you believe that these buggers can just take bacterial DNA and incorporate it into their own? But remember, if you add deoxyribonuclease, that degrades the naked DNA and it stops the transformation. 
The next word we need to remember is conjugation, otherwise known as sex. Conjugation happens in one of two ways. F plus conjugates with F minus or HFR conjugates with F minus. So with the F plus F minus conjugation, you have your F plus plasmid, which contains genes that were required for sex pilus and conjugation. So your bacteria without this plasmid are termed your F minus. So sex pilus on the F plus bacterium contacts your F minus bacterium, so basically the male and the female, and a single strand of plasmid DNA is transferred across the conjugal bridge, otherwise known as the mating bridge. There's no transfer of chromosomal DNA that happens here. It's just plasmid DNA. So now the HFR and the F minus conjugation, the F plus plasmid can become incorporated into the bacterial chromosomal DNA itself. It's termed high frequency recombination or the HFR cell. So the transfer of the leading part of the plasmid and a few flanking chromosomal genes, it's high frequency recombination, it integrates some of those bacterial genes. And so the recipient cell remains F minus, but now may have new bacterial genes from the HFR. The next term we have to remember in bacterial genetics is transduction. Transduction can happen either as generalized transduction or specialized transduction. Always involves a bacteriophage. The first type of transduction is generalized transduction. It's essentially a packaging error. So the lytic phage or the bacteriophage infects the bacterium. And remember, that's the difference here. In generalized transduction, it's a lytic phage, while in specialized, it's the lysogenic phage. So the lytic phage in transduction infects the bacterium, and that infection of the bacterium itself will lead to a cleavage of the bacterial DNA. So parts of the bacterial chromosomal DNA will become packaged in phage capsid. So think about the phage capsule inserting its DNA and it could be it could either have the original lytic phage or it could have the bacterial DNA and the release of the new phage comes from the lysed cell infecting other bacteria and then those genes are transferred to new bacteria after that. So what do lytic phages do? They basically lyse the bacteria, break apart that bacteria, and all these phages come out of it, and the transfer of bacteria goes from there as new bacteriophages, incorporating whatever new DNA or DNA they were blessed with to infect new bacteria. For those of us that need a little bit of reminder what the differences between lytic phages and lysogenic phages are, lytic phages or lytic bacteriophages take over the machinery of the cell and make phage components, right? So let's say the lytic phage infects through transduction, otherwise known as generalized, transduction. They took over the machinery and they then destroy and then lyse the cell and they release new phage particles. The phage particles that they release, let's say that the lytic phage that infects the bacteria release, let's say, a red gene, right? It mixes with the bacterial cleavage of DNA. It causes a cleavage of bacterial DNA and package into phage capsids. So you're going to have red DNA from the lytic phage and you're going to have blue DNA from the bacteria itself. So once the bacteria blows up and releases new phages, each phage will either have a blue DNA or a red DNA. The blue or red DNA will then infect bacteria and transfer the new bacteria genes. The lysogenic phage or the lysogenic bacterial phage actually just incorporate their nucleic acid into the chromosome of the host cell without destroying it. 
And here's what we have that's called a specialized transduction. It's an excision event, all right? So while generalized transduction was a packaging error, specialized transduction is an excision event. Lysogenic phage infects the bacterium. So viral DNA incorporates into the bacterial chromosome. And when phage DNA is excised, it flanks the bacterial genes and bacterial genes may be excised with it. So the DNA is packaged into the phage capsid and can infect another bacterium. You've got five, five bacterial toxins that are encoded in a lysogenic phage. And the acronym is ABCDs. Group A strep, erythrogenic toxin, B for botulinum toxin, C for cholera toxin, D for diphtheria toxin, and S for shiga toxin, ABCDs, apostrophe S. These undergo the specialized transduction under the lysogenic phage. And that's just because these five bacterial toxins, again, ABCDs, are encoded in lysogenic phage as it is. The last one for bacterial genetics is called transposition. Transposition, it's a jumping process involved transposons, specialized segment of DNA, which can copy and excise itself and then insert into the same DNA molecule or unrelated DNA. This is a bugger here and it is basically like a plasmid or a chromosome and it just inserts itself. It's critical because it creates plasmids that cause your monster drug resistance and tr the transfer across your species lines. For example, TN1546 with Van A from Enterococcus to Staph aureus. Let's talk about toxins, the main event, the moment we've all been waiting for. I'm gonna first go over the toxins and then specify the differences and go over the specific groups. I will give you a USMLE question on why these groupings are important to remember. Toxins may aid in invasiveness, damage cells, inhibit cellular processes, or trigger immune response and damage. Endotoxin is a lipopolysaccharide or an LPS, right? Remember, endotoxin, LPS. An LPS is a part of the gram-negative outer membrane. You only get LPS out of gram-negative, thus you only get endotoxins out of gram-negatives. The toxic portion is lipid A. But let's first go over what a lipopolysaccharide, also known as an endotoxin, is made up of. These are large molecules consisting of a lipid and a polysaccharide that's composed of three things an O antigen, a core, and lipid A. The O antigen is a repetitive glycan polymer contained with an LPS referred to as the O antigen, O polysaccharide, O side chain, O whatever. The O antigen is attached to the core oligosaccharide and comprises of the outermost domain of the LPS molecule. Now the core has both an outer and inner portion, but the core has always contained an oligosaccharide component that attaches directly to the lipid A and commonly contains sugars such as heptose. Now number three, which is the important LPS component, is lipid A. They're made up of hydrophobic fatty chain acids that anchor the LPS into the bacterial membrane itself. This lipid A portion is what is responsible for the toxicity of our gram-negative bacteria. Especially when bacterial cells are lysed by the immune system, these fragments are the ones that make us sick after these bacteria are dead, basically. You can blame lipid a for what's getting released into the 
circulation that's causing our fever, diarrhea, even our fatal endotoxic shock. Generally, it's not released until the death of the cell. Exception to that is Neisseria meningitidis, which overproduces the outer membrane fragments. Usually, the LPS is heat-stable, so it's not strongly immunogenic, so it can't be converted into a toxoid. In other words, we can't create vaccines against them. The mechanism of action on why LPS makes us sick, it activates macrophages. It leads to the release of tissue necrosis factor alpha, interleukin-1, and interleukin-6. Obviously, interleukin-1 is the major mediator of fever, and it initiates macrophage activation and products that lead to tissue damage. For example, damage to the endothelium from bradykinin-induced vasodilation will lead to shock. Coagulation will cause disseminated intracellular coagulation and mediated through activation of Hageman factor. And you have your peptidoglycan and your tachoic acids to thank for that as well. Now let's talk about the exotoxins. These are proteins that are generally quite toxic and secreted by bacterial cells. Some are gram-positive and some are gram-negative. They can be modified by chemicals or heat to produce a toxoid that's still immunogenic but no longer toxic so we can use it in vaccinations. They have an A and B component to protein toxins. The B component binds specific receptors to facilitate internalization of A and then the A component component is the active toxic component. It's often an enzyme such as ADP ribosyl transferase. So you have your exotoxins and they may be subclassed as enterotoxins, neurotoxins, and cytotoxins and we will be going over those specifically. Cytolysins lyse cells from the outside and damage the membrane. So you're thinking about cytolysins such as Clostridium perfringens, which is an alpha toxin that is a lysithinase. It eats away cell membranes. So Staph aureus, alpha toxin, inserts itself to form the pores in the membrane themselves. Let's compare and contrast between the two. When it comes to sources. Let's start with the endotoxins. Endotoxins are actually your outer cell membranes of most gram-negative bacteria. It's not produced to hurt you, it's just there in their cell membranes and you wait until they die. Unless of course you have what? Neisseria meningitidis. And your exotoxins come from gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria alike. Now let's talk about secretion, right? Where they're secreted from. Endotoxins are secreted from a lipid A component of the LPS, a structured part of the bacteria released when lice, while exotoxins are secreted from the bacterial cell itself. Let's talk about chemistry. Your endotoxins are made up of bacterial chromosome, while your exotoxins are made up of polypeptides. Where are the genes located for them? With endotoxins, they're located in the bacterial chromosome, while in exotoxins, they're located in plasmid or bacteriophage. Now let's talk about how much you need of each to get sick. With endotoxins, you're going to need a lot of LPS or endotoxins to make you sick. The adverse effect is low, so you need the fatal dose on the order of hundreds of micrograms. While with exotoxins, a fatal dose, you only need just one microgram. To make you sick. Endotoxins will cause fever, shock, hypotension, disseminated intravascular coagulation, while exotoxins have different effects and we'll go over that. Each exotoxin is specific on how it's going to make you sick and we have to remember it to the biochemical level on the USMLE. Let's talk about antigenicity. Endotoxins are poorly antigenic, while exotoxins induce high titer antibodies called antitoxins. That's how we can protect ourselves from it. Endotoxins, in terms of vaccines, so endotoxins, we can't have toxoids form from them, as I said earlier, and there's no vaccine available. But with exotoxins, 
we can have toxoids used as vaccines. Let's talk about the stability in heat. Endotoxins, or LPS, are stable at 100 degrees for one entire hour. While exotoxins, they can be destroyed rapidly at 60 degrees Celsius, except, and there's a big exception for an exotoxin heat stability, except for staphylococcal enterotoxin and E. coli heat stable toxin. And which specific E. coli am I talking about? I'm talking about the enterotoxigenic E. coli or ETAC toxin has a heat stable component, which we will go over when we get to the specific exotoxins. But just remember, once again, exotoxins are destroyed rapidly at 60 degrees, except for two things, staphylococcal enterotoxin and E. coli heat stable toxin or your ETAC heat stable toxin. And which staph am I talking about when I say staph enterotoxin? I'm talking about Staphylococcus aureus has an enterotoxin type B, which again, we'll go over in a few minutes. Endotoxins cause usually your meningococcemias and your sepsis by your gram-negative rods. So think about the wall just chipping away at these endotoxins, while your exotoxins will cause your things like your tetanus, your botulism, your diphtheria, your cholera. They're created by the bacteria itself. To make you sick. One fun way to differentiate the two is your ex is evil and your ex is deliberately making things to make you sick. A way that we can remember endotoxins, and this is something that's suggested by first aid, endotoxins, E for edema, N for nitric oxide, D for DIC or death, O for outer membrane, T for tissue necrosis factor alpha, O for O antigen plus core polysaccharide plus lipid A, X for extremely heat stable, I for IL-1 and IL-6, N for neutrophil hemotaxis, and S for shock. So we also have to remember with endotoxins that there are three main effects, your macrophage activation, which are your TLR4 or CD14, to be specific if you're into your immunology chapter yet, or your complement activation, and your third is your tissue factor activation. And speaking of immunology, let's correlate a little bit here. Endotoxin, or your lipid A component, or your LPS, as you say, um, let's talk about the macrophage activation via TLR-CD14. Those affect three things, your interleukin-1 and interleukin-6, as I have mentioned, and that causes what? Fever. TNF-alpha, or tissue necrosis factor alpha, causes fever and hypotension. Nitric oxide causes hypotension. Endotoxin also causes complement activation, the second component that I spoke about. Complement activation involves two complements, to be exact. What are they? C3A and C5A. C3A will cause histamine release, hypotension, and edema, and C5A will cause neutrophil chemotaxis. Let's go a step further and correlate it even more to immunology, because why not? C5A and C3A belong to a group of complements called what? Anaphylatoxins. Anaphylatoxins are C3A, C4A, and C5A. C5A, 5A, has the highest biological activity and is able to directly affect the neutrophils and the monocytes to speed up phagocytosis of pathogens. While C3A works with C5A to activate mast cells, recruit antibody, complement, and phagocytic cells, and increase fluid in the tissue, all of which contribute to the initiation of what? The adaptive immune response. 
Well, C4A is an anaphylatoxin, it's the least active anaphylatoxin. While C5A mediates chemotaxis, right, that's a big one, chemotaxis for C5A, C3A is most likely, or C3A is most attributed to histamine release, which is hypotension and edema. The third component of endotoxin LPA component, or LPS, is tissue factor activation. So what we have here is coagulation cascade. Coagulation cascade causing a disseminated intravascular coagulation. So pop quiz and correlation. Let's correlate this with hematology. In the coagulation cascade, what is a tissue factor otherwise known as? It's otherwise known as Factor 3. It's a clotting factor present in subendothelial tissues and leukocytes. Its role in the clotting process is the initiation of thrombin formation from the zymogen prothrombin. Thromoplastin defines the cascade that leads to the activation of factor 10, the tissue factor pathway. And that pathway used to be called the extrinsic pathway. For the oldies like myself, remember that the ex extrinsic pathway starts with trauma, then 7, right? 7A, then tissue factor activates factor 10, and factor 10A mixes with prothrombin to create thrombin. Just to jog our immunology memory even more, we've been talking about C3A being histamine release, hypotension, edema, and C5A being a major chemotaxin. Let's give some love to our other complements. Which complement is the numero uno opsonin, or the the one most potent in opsonization? And that is C3B. And while C5A is our major chemotaxin, its other counterpart, C5B, forms the first part of the membrane attack complex. All right, enough correlating. Let's move back to microbiology here and move on to the specific exotoxins. <laughs> Before we move on to the big guns of the big questions, here is a quick case. A patient with a non-healing skin lesion has that lesion biopsied to determine its cause. The pathology lab reports back that the lesion has the characteristics of a stellate granuloma. Which of the following is most likely to be true of the causal agent? And the choices are A. It has a lipopolysaccharide B. It has pili C. It is an exotoxin producer. D. It is a superantigen. And E. It is intracellular. The answer is E. It is intracellular. And why is that? Well, the attribute of microorganisms which associates most strongly with granulomas is actually most likely due to the fact that they live intracellularly. I mean, let's just first look at what a granuloma is. A granuloma is an aggregation of macrophages that forms in response to basically chronic inflammation, right? Causing the Th1 response of the immune system. And they form usually because of the chronic persistence and indigestibility of the pathogen which caused that result. So why isn't it choice A? It's not lipopolysaccharide because as we just went over, a lipopolysaccharide is otherwise known as an endotoxin caused by gram-negative bacteria, yes, but not granuloma formation. 
the macrophage activation via TLR4 or CD14 with the activation of interleukin 1, interleukin 6 creates fever, right, with endotoxins. Tissue necrosis factor alpha causes fever and hypotension. This activation of the macrophages also enacts the nitric oxide to cause hypotension, but not granuloma formation. Now for choice B, which is pili, is not the right answer because pili are just surface structures of some bacteria that mediate attachment to cell surface. Pili can also prevent phagocytosis by things like Neisseria gonorrhea. Sometimes Neisseria gonorrhea pili have so much pili around them that they act as, as an anti-phagocytic surface component that inhibit phagocytic uptake. Why not C? Why not exotoxins? Because exotoxins are secreted toxins which may cause cell damage in a number of ways and superantigens, but actually aren't any exotoxins that force granuloma formation. And choice D being a superantigen is definitely the wrong answer because superantigens will cause stimulation of large numbers of T lymphocytes and macrophages that cause symptoms of shock. And again, we have to go back to the definition of what a granuloma is, or we have to talk about what a granuloma does. In terms of an underlying cause, the difference between a granuloma and the different types of inflammation is that granulomas form in response to antigens that are resistant to your first responders, right? So first responders are usually your neutrophils and your eosinophils causing your immediate inflammatory responses. The granuloma formation usually comes later on. The antigen that's causing the granuloma is most often an infectious agent, but sometimes it could be a foreign substance or it could be something unknown such as sarcoidosis. It's important to go over granuloma-causing diseases, and may this serve as a preview to the upcoming podcast episodes. Tuberculosis or mycobacterium tuberculosis causes caseating granulomas. They tend to contain necrosis and they caseate. So these are multinucleated giant cells with nuclei arranged like a horseshoe by the Langerhans giant cells and foreign body giant cells. They're often present, but they're not always specific for tuberculosis. For a definitive diagnosis of tuberculosis, you have to do identification by the causative agent through microbiologic cultures. Leprosy, mycobacterium leprae also causes granulomas that are found in skin and involves the nerves. Another mycobacterium, which is mycobacterium lepromatosis, is an acid fast bacillus recently discovered in 2008 that causes diffuse lepromatous leprosy. Other pathogens that can cause granulomas are schistosomas in schistosomiasis, histoplasmus in histoplasmosis, cryptococcus in cryptococcosis, in cat scratch disease caused by Bartonella hensley. Bartonella Hensley usually causes a suppurative type of granuloma. Suppurative type of granulomas are also called stellate microabscesses. They're granulomas with central collections of neutrophils surrounded by histiocytes and multinucleated giant cells. Can be seen in cat scratch disease such as Bartonella Hensley, lymphogranuloma venereum with chlamydia trachomatis, tularemia, and Yersinia. Listeria monocytogenes can cause granulomatosis infantiseptica following in utero infection, leishmania, as well as pneumocystis pneumonia can also cause granulomas. But to correlate that with what we currently have for our intracellular pathogens and what we've already learned is that a lot of granulomas are formed. If you've been paying attention, you hear that a lot of these granulomas are formed by intracellular organisms. And repetition is key. Let's just remember what our intracellular organisms are. So there's three different
mnemonics that I gave us on the last episode. Bear Elsier are primarily intracellular organisms that we're not going to be able to see easily through a gram stain. Bear LC for Bartonella, A for Anaplasma, R for Rickettsia, E for Ehrlichia, L for Legionella, and C for Chlamydia. Remember the mnemonic for obligate intracellular bacteria obligate intracellular bacteria want to stay inside or they have to stay inside because it's a really chilly and cold really chilly and cold or rcc is rickettsia chlamydia and coxiella facultative intracellular mnemonic is some nasty bugs may live facultatively facultative intracellular once again repetition is key some nasty bugs may live facultatively s for salmonella and for neisseria B for Brucella, M for Mycobacterium, L for Listeria, F for Francisella, LY in facultatively is L for Legionella, and Y for Yersinia. Alright, the moment we've been waiting for, we're going to go over the different exotoxins. Let's break this down into groups. It's important to group them so we can know and memorize them. So here we go. There are four bacteria that inhibit protein synthesis, and those four are Corinobacterium diphtheriae, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, Shigella dysentery, and Enterohemorrhagic E. coli. Once again, four inhibitors of protein synthesis. They are Corinobacterium diphtheriae, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, Shigella dysentery, and Enterohemorrhagic E. coli. So with those four inhibitors of protein synthesis, we're going to break them down into two different groups. So it's going to ask you like what bacteria breaks down pro protein synthesis the way this other bacteria does. For example, if it asks which bacteria other than Carinobacterium diphtheria breaks down protein by elongation factor 2, you're, it's not going to be that simple. Obviously, it's going to be like a two-step question and you're going to say, oh, it's Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Which brings us to two bacteria who has, whose mode of action is the inactivation of elongation factor 2 are Carinobacterium Bacterium diphtheria and Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Corinobacterium diphtheria, otherwise known as diphtheria toxin, its mode of action is ADP ribosyl transferase, which inactivates elongation factor 2 or EF2. Its primary target is hard nerves and epithelium. Its role in disease is inhibits eukaryotic cell protein synthesis. Another one that inhibits eukaryotic cell protein synthesis through ADP ribosyl transferase by inactivating elongation factor 2 is Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is exotoxin A for its toxin, and it targets mainly the liver. The other two left of our inhibitors of protein synthesis are Shigella dysentery and EHEC, or enterohemorrhagic E. coli. These two inactivate 60S ribosomes by removing adenine from ribosomal RNA. They both interfere with the 60S ribosomal subunit. Shigella, which releases shigatoxin, of course, inactivates 60S ribosome. They cause mucosal damage on the GI, which causes dysentery. Shigatoxin, also enhances cytokine release causing hemolytic uremic syndrome. Another thing to remember about shigatoxin or shigella dysentery is it is enterotoxic, cytotoxic, and neurotoxic. The second 6CS inactivator by removing adenine from ribosomal RNA is EHEC or enterohemorrhagic E. coli releasing shiga-like toxin or SLT. EHEC is otherwise known as STEC. Sometimes you see STEC which is shiga-like toxin releasing E. coli or aka V. 
VTEC, otherwise known as Verotoxigenic E. coli. EHEC or VTEC or STEC, SLT, the shigalike toxin that it releases, enhances cytokine release, causing hemolytic uremic syndrome, which is prototypically an EHEC serotype 0157H7. But unlike Shigella, EHEC does not invade your host cells. So how does EHEC and Shigella cause hemolytic uremic syndrome or HUS when these buggers usually just attack the intestinal wall, right? But once the EHEC bacteria or the STEC bacteria attach to the intestinal cell wall or the Shigella bacteria attach to the intestinal cell wall, they release their respective toxin, the Shigella for the Shiga toxin and the EHEC for the Shiga-like toxin. The toxins are absorbed by blood vessels and picked up by your eosinophils, your basophils, and your neutrophils. The toxins themselves are attached to these cells. These cells go on to the filtration system, which is the glomerular capillaries. And the endothelial cells of the glomerular capillaries have receptors, otherwise known as GB3 receptors, global triosylceramide. Once inside the sugar toxin or the sugar-like toxin, Fs the endothelial cell up. And how does it do that? It prevents your amino acid tRNA from binding with ribosomes. It stops protein synthesis in that cell. The toxin also leads to fragmentation of your DNA causing apoptosis. So now that the endothelial cell is dead, or many endothelial cells are dead, your capillaries try to plug up the hole of the dead endothelial cell through hemostasis. So a bunch of platelets is gonna go in there and try to stop the damage and lots of tiny blood clots are going to be formed in the glomerular capillaries. Now these platelets have another receptor, a glycoprotein receptor called GP1B receptor that binds to a, a clotting factor called von Willebrand factor and it causes clots to form inappropriately everywhere. Because your body is sending all these platelets to the kidneys to help stop the kidney bleeding or the damage of the endothelial cells, your blood platelet count is actually going to decrease causing thrombocytopenia. And because these platelet clot formations are all over your kidneys and arterioles, the red blood cells can't pass through or they have to squeeze through and sometimes when they squeeze through they will be damaged and hence you get something called microangiopathic hemolysis where you find schistocytes in the blood as well as anemia due to the increased destruction of the red blood cells in these arterioles. This anemia will eventually cause ischemia in your vital organs especially your kidneys. The ischemic kidney is now unable to filter blood and uh, the kidney's function is decreased and thus if the kidney is ischemic and it can't filter the blood it can't filter the bad metabolites such as your urea and hence the name hemolytic uremic syndrome. So Shigella's shigatoxin and EHEX or enterohemorrhagic E. coli's verotoxin or shigalike toxin are the bastards that cause kidney failure and hemolytic uremic syndrome. Another interesting fact about these four, two of these toxins actually are encoded in a lysogenic phage which infects a bacterium called specialized transduction. To just recall and correlate from our previous episode, there are five bacterial toxins that are encoded in a lysogenic phage. A, B, C, D's is your mnemonic and they are a for group A strep erythrogenic toxin, B for botulinum toxin, C for cholera toxin, D for diphtheria toxin, and S for sugar toxin. It's ABCDs. Let's move on. And there are four bacteria that increase CAMP or cyclic adenosine monophosphate. The four bacteria that increases or overactivates adenylate cyclase, therefore increasing cyclic AMP are enterotoxigenic E. coli or ETEC, Bacillus anthracis, Vibrio cholera, and Bordetella pertussis. The four that increase CAMP are EBVB, ETEC, B anthracis, V cholerae, and B pertussis. 
Three of the four of those increase fluid secretion, and those are ETEC, bacillus enthesis, and vibrio cholera. ETEC, or enterotoxigenic E. coli, has two different toxins that we need to worry about. One is heat liable toxin, or LT, which overactivates adenylate cyclase, increasing CAMP, which increases chloride secretion in the gut and H2O efflux. Heat stable toxin, or ST, overactivates guanylate cyclase and increases CGMP, otherwise known as cyclic guanosine monophosphate. Because the heat stable toxin, or the ST, overactivates guanylate cyclase, therefore increases the CGMP, it decreases your sodium chloride resorption and H2O in the gut. Heat-stable toxin overactivates CGMP through activation of guanylate cyclase, thus decreasing the resorption of sodium chloride and H2O in the gut. Now, bacillus enthesis is a bugger here, and it has two toxins made from three different proteins. That's EF, or edema factor, which is adenylate cyclase, and anthrax, or bacillus enthesis, also has a lethal factor, or LF, which activates adenylate cyclase. And it's because of this lethal factor and edema factor that the bacillus enthesis is likely responsible for your characteristic edematous borders of your black S char in cutaneous anthrax. Not only that, anthrax also has a PA, a third protein called PA, which is a protective antigen, which is the B component for both. EF and LF. What anthrax also does, it decreases phagocytosis and it kills the cells. Vibrio cholera. Cholera toxin overactivates adenylate cyclase, increasing cyclic AMP by permanently activating your GS, otherwise known as your heterotrimeric GS subunit that simulates your CAMP-dependent pathway by activating adenylate cyclase. And how I remember it is Vibrio cholerae is so gay that Vic likes Gus. Vic or VC for Vibrio cholerae likes activates the GS subunit, thus increasing your chloride secretion in the gut and your water efflux. You get a lot of rice water diarrhea as a result. Now, one of those four cyclic AMP increasers and overactivators of adenylate cyclase does it another way. Thus, it inhibits phagocytic abilities, and that is Bordetella pertussis. So, Bordetella pertussis releases the pertussis toxin, but what it does is that it inactivates your inhibitory G subunit or GI, and thus activating your adenylate cyclase and increasing camp. Bordetella pertussis also has a bunch of different toxins toxins that it releases. This gram-negative coxobacilli releases a filamentous hemagglutinin, pertactin, agglutinin. All of those three actually use it to anchor to the respiratory epithelium. The fourth toxin it releases is what's called a tracheocytotoxin, which paralyzes your cilia. And the fifth one, and most important, is your pertussis toxin, which inhibits phagocytosis, helps anchor it, causes T-cell proliferation, and yet it still belongs to our group that increases cyclic AMP, but it does it through inactivating inhibitory G subunit or your GI subunit. The next group is two of them that inhibit release of neurotransmitter, and those are Clostridium tetany and Clostridium botulinum. 
Clostridium tetani releasing the tetanospasmin toxin and Clostridium botulinum releasing the botulinum toxin. It's important to note these two have an AB toxin just like the rest and the A part is the one that's a toxic component or the toxin component that makes us sick and the B component enables binding for B for binding and triggering the uptake or endocytosis of the active or A component. Remember that the A components are usually ADP ribosyl transferases and others have enzymatic activities that I'm mentioning, but remember as well, and I've brought this up, that one of these toxins that I've mentioned already have three components, which is which one? Anthrax. Three proteins, two toxins. Anthrax has EF, LF, and PA. EF edema factor equals adenylate cyclase. LF lethal factor activates adenylate cyclase, and the PA is the protective antigen and the B component for both. So both Clostridium tetany and Clostridium botulinum are proteases that cleave SNARE, and SNARE stands for soluble NSF attachment protein receptor. It's a set of proteins that are required for neurotransmitter release via vesicular fusion. Clostridium tetany or tetanospasmin is a toxin that prevents the release of inhibitory neurotransmitters from the Renshaw cells of the spinal cord. And when I say inhibitory neurotransmitters, I'm referring to GABA and glycine. Again, I'm referring to GABA and glycine, which are the neurotransmitters that are inhibited by tetanospasmin. And because GABA and glycine are effectively inhibited in the spinal cord, their function as inhibitory neurotransmitters will cause an explosion of spastic paralysis, rhesus sardonicus, and trismus, or lockjaw. Clostridium botulinum, or botulinum toxin, is a toxin that prevents the release of stimulatory. And by stimulatory, I mean acetylcholine or ACH signals at the neuromuscular junction, which then causes flaccid paralysis or floppy baby. Remember, tetanus prevents inhibitory, while botulinum or Botox prevents stimulatory. I know that first aid gives you two bacteria that light cell membranes, but I'm going to add one more to that. The two examples given that light cell membranes are Clostridium perfringens and Streptococcus pyogenes, or group A strep. Again, light cell membranes, Streptococcus pyogenes, and Clostridium perfringens. Let's start with Clostridium perfringens. It's a gram-positive bacteria, and we'll go over that later, but what it releases is alpha toxin. The Clostridium perfringens alpha toxin is a phospho lipase, or rather it is a membrane disrupting toxin with phospholipase C activity, which is directly responsible for the gas gangrene and the myonecrosis. This phospholipase C, otherwise known as lecithinase, degrades tissue and cell membranes and it degrades phospholipids. The hemolysis will show a double zone of hemolysis on the blood agar. The second one is streptopyogenes. The streptopyogenes toxin is streptolysin O, and it's a protein that degrades cell membrane. It lyses red blood cells. It contributes to beta hemolysis in host antibodies against toxin, otherwise known as your ASO, used to diagnose the rheumatic fever. But don't confuse that with immune complexes of post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis. Your ASO, or streptolysin O, lyses red blood cells, and the an antibodies against it 
otherwise known as the ASO, anti-streptolysin O, can use to be diagnosed rheumatic fever. But with immune complexes of post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis, that is usually after empatigo, not strep pharyngitis, and it is caused by an acute inflammation of the kidney's glomeruli two to four weeks after your initial infection because of a type 3 hypersensitivity reaction against the streptococcal antigens that are still remaining in the blood. Type 3 means immune complexes are formed against the group A strept antigen, while anti streptolysin O is against the toxin streptolysin O. There's a third cytolysin that I'd like to mention, and that is Staph aureus. Staph aureus is a cytolysin, and it also releases another toxin, also called alpha toxin. But this alpha toxin from the Staphylococcus aureus, it's a toxin that intercalates forming pores. So it forms pores in the cell membrane so that the cell membrane becomes leaky. So while the clostridium perfringens alpha toxin disrupts through phospholipase C activity causing gangrene myonecrosis, Staph aureus alpha toxin causes your beta hemolysis. This bugger actually punches out holes in the membranes, so it'll cause eventual apoptosis. Although I talked about two different alpha toxins, and both of them both lice, one is particular to lecithinase, which causes the myonecrosis and hemolysis, and that is the clostridium perfringens. Speaking of Staph aureus, let's talk about the exotoxins that are considered as super antigens and cause shock, and there is two of them. The first one is one that I just mentioned called Staph aureus, which creates TSST1, otherwise known as toxic shock syndrome toxin, and Streptococcus pyogenes, otherwise known as group A strept, which releases erythrogenic exotoxin A. Both super antigens that cause shock from Staph aureus and Strep pyogenes attack us the same way. They cross-link the beta region of your T-cell receptor to your MHC class 2 on your antigen-presenting cells outside of the antigen-binding site, therefore causing an overwhelming release of your cytokines, your interleukin-1, interleukin-2, interferon-gamma, and your tissue necrosis factor alpha. This cytokine storm will cause shock. Staph aureus has some five major ones that we need to concern about in terms of toxins. The first toxin is, of course, the TSSD1. The second one is the Pantin-Valentine leukocytin toxin, and that's exactly what it does. It destroys leukocytes. The number three is the hemolysin. Of course, that's what causes RBCs to lice. Number four is exfoliative toxin. Staph aureus's exfoliative toxin causes the scalded skin syndrome. The fifth major toxin for Staph aureus is enterotoxin. Staph aureus enterotoxin which causes food poisoning and it's heat stable. If you've been paying attention, I've been talking about two different bacteria that produce heat-stable toxins so far. One is the Staph aureus heat-stable enterotoxin, which causes food poisoning, and the other heat-stable toxin that we should talk about is the ETEC enterotoxigenic E. coli, which overactivates guanylate cyclase and increases CGMP and decreases the sodium chloride and water resorption in the gut. The other super antigen besides Staph aureus is Streptopyogenes erythrogenic exotoxin A, which causes a toxic shock like syndrome with fever, rash, shock, 
and of course it can also cause scarlet fever just for correlation what's the other bacteria that produces exotoxin a exotoxin a group a strep which is the erythrogenic exotoxin a and exotoxin a is also produced by something called pseudomonas aeruginosa don't confuse the two because pseudomonas aeruginosa exotoxin a has a completely different mechanism that one inactivates elongation factor too but the key word to differentiate the two isn't by the fact that they're both named exotoxin A's, the streptopyogenes toxin or the streptopyogenes exotoxin A is otherwise known as an erythrogenic toxin. The word erythrogenic is our clue here. If you look up the dictionary, erythrogenic means causing inflammation and reddening of the skin, hence your scarlet fever rash. These erythrogenic toxins are otherwise also known as, and it could also be called, streptococcal pyrogenic exotoxins, or SPE. And these exotoxins are then further divided into three different flavors, SPEA, SPEB, and SPEC. SPEA and SPEC are the superantigens which induce the inflammation and activate your T cells and thus producing inflammatory cytokines, while SPEB is the most abundant streptococcal extracellular protein and is a cysteine protease. Group A streps SPEA and SPEC are the ones that interact with your class 2 MHC or your class 2 major histocompatibility complex. So once you've disturbed your class 2 MHCs, your entire T cell or actually 30% of the entire T cell population is then stimulated. No wonder streptopyogenes causes such problems. That's 300 times more powerful than your conventional antigens. The cytokine storm causes your toxic shock syndrome and your wide spread systemic vasodilation. Now that you know all of the important exotoxins, let's do a little quiz from USMLE exam question bank. Here's a case, pay close attention. A 25 year old woman comes to the emergency department due to two days of abdominal pain and bloody diarrhea. A few days ago she attended a church barbecue party. The patient lives alone and has no medical problems. She doesn't know if anyone else at the party develops similar symptoms. Her temperature is 37.1 Celsius or 98.8 degrees Fahrenheit. Her blood pressure is 119 over 76, pulse is 92 per minute, and respiration is 16 per minute. There's abdominal tenderness with no rebounding or guarding. Guaiac positive stools are detected on rectal examination. Soul cultures reveal an E. coli strain does not produce glucuronidase and does not ferment sorbitol on sorbitol containing mac agar or maconchi agar. Which of the following best describes the mechanism of action for the toxin produced by these bacteria? A. Activates adenylate cyclase. B. Activates guanylate cyclase. C. Disrupts the cellular cytoskeleton. D. Inactivates elongation factor 2. Or E inactivates ribosomal units? And the answer is E, inactivates ribosomal subunits. This is a two-step question, and if you've been paying attention, you would have gotten it right. Let's break this down. E. coli and bloody diarrhea. What E. coli is most likely to cause bloody diarrhea? It's E. coli or Escherichia coli, EHEC, 0157H7 enterohemorrhagic E. coli or EHEC. As we've learned, EHEC can cause hemorrhagic colitis. It's most characteristically following ingestion of inadequately 
cooked hamburger meat. As I have been stressing like a crazy person, EHEC elaborates a shiga-like toxin produced just like the shigella dysentery. Toxin. So pop quiz, what does the shiga and shiga-like toxin inactivate in human cells? It inactivates the 60S ribosomal subunit in human cells, which will lead to your inhibition of protein synthesis and eventual cell death. EHEC can also lead to hemolytic uremic syndrome characterized by thrombocytopenia, microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, and renal insufficiency, sometimes with uremia. It's not enteroinvasive E. coli because EHEC does not invade the intestinal mucosa. And unlike enterotoxigenic E. coli, ETEC, EHEC does not produce heat label toxin, LT, or heat stable toxin, ST. Choice A is activate adenylate cyclase. And let's review what adenylate cyclase toxins or toxins that produce adenylate cyclase or increase adenylate cyclase. They are Bordetella pertussis, which produces adenylate cyclase toxin, ETEC, which is your LT, produces adenylate cyclase toxin, Campylobacter jejuni, as well as your Vibrio cholera. I spoke extensively about four toxins that overactivate CAMP or cyclic AMP, and those are EBVB, ETEC, Bacillus anthracis, Vibrio cholera, and Bordetella pertussis. Add Campylobacter jejuni to that because the Campylobacter enterotoxin or the C jejuni enterotoxin also produces an adenylate cyclase increase and therefore causing an increase in your intracellular cyclic AMP, which leads to decreased absorption and increased secretion of sodium chloride and water. All right, so popcus for choice B. Choice B says activates guanylate cyclase. We know that as ETEC, your stable toxin in ETEC. And I'm going to add one more that our first aid doesn't mention. That's Yersinia enterocolita. Yersinia enterocolita produces toxins that also increase your cyclic GMP, leading to watery diarrhea and electrolyte loss. ETEC ST, or the stable toxin in ETEC, and your Yersinia enterocolita produce toxins that increase your cyclic GMP. Choice C says disrupts the cellular cytoskeleton. What toxin do you think it is? It's Clostridium difficile toxin, the exotoxin for Clostridium difficile that disrupts cytoskeleton with toxin B, otherwise known as a cytotoxin. This toxin acts by depolarizing actin and leading to cell death. Choice D. Choice D talks about inactivating elongation factor 2, another one that we talked about extensively. Now let's recall those two that elongate or inactivate elongation factor 2 or EF2, which are Carinobacterium diphtheriae and Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Carinobacterium diphtheriae is diphtheriotoxin and Pseudomonas aeruginosa is exotoxin A. Both inactivate elongation factor 2. So EHEC or enterohemorrhagic E. coli 0157H7 common causes bloody diarrhea and can lead to hemolytic uremic syndrome. Also, it's associated with consumption of undercooked ground beef and elaborates a shiga-like toxin capable of inhibiting protein synthesis in colonic mucosal cells and renal endothelial cells. This particular strain of E. coli, 0157H7, is unable to ferment sorbitol, no sorbitol fermentation, and does not produce glucuronidase. <laughs> Here's another case. A 27-year-old man comes to the emergency department due to several hours of right foot pain and swelling. The patient says he was working in his barn last night and stepped on an old nail. 
This morning though, he immediately woke up and there was pain near the injury site. It has increased throughout the day and is accompanied by progressive swelling. This is just hours, guys. This, this patient has no chronic medical conditions and takes no medications. Temperature is 38.1 or 100.6 degrees Fahrenheit, but pressure is 135 over 75 and pulse is 95. The right foot is swollen with some erythema around the injury site. Radiographic imaging reveals gas in tissues. Keyword gas. Surgical exploration shows extensive tissue necrosis. Culture from the site reveals gram-positive rods. Which of the following best describes the mechanism of action of the toxin responsible for the necrotic effects in this patient? Answer choices are A. Actin depolymerization B. Carbohydrate degradation C. Elongation factor ribosylation D. Phospholipid splitting E. Plasminogen activation F. Presynaptic acetylcholine release inhibition and G. T-cell hyperstimulation Again, we have a two-step question here. First, let's figure out what is the possible bacteria that's causing this. It's gram-positive rods and it reveals gas in tissues on the x-ray and surgical exploration shows extensive tissue necrosis. And I gave you a clue earlier that this occurred within just a few hours. It looks like gas gangrene, so it must be Clostridium perfringens. I mean, that's great, we know that, but it's not in the choices. The choices and the question that it's asking is, what is the toxin that's responsible for this? So the second step is, what does Clostridium perfringens do? And the answer for that is D, phospholipid splitting. In this episode, we went over the exotoxins and we know that Clostridium perfringens causes gas gangrene within hours of infection and it's mediated by the generation of alpha toxin, which is otherwise a lecithinase. It's a potent phospholipase C mimetic that splits host phospholipids. So what this compound does is that it hydrolyzes your lecithin. The lecithin contains lipoprotein complexes in cell membranes, and that's going to cause that cell membrane and that cell to lyse and cause, therefore, tissue necrosis and then edema. It mediates intravascular aggregation of your platelets, your neutrophils, your fibrin, and then you're going to get vascular occlusion because the perfringens want an anaerobic environment. It's anaerobic, and that's required to thrive and grow in those tissues. Although Although Clostridium perfringens produces a vast array of other toxins, alpha toxin is the one that's mediated for its devastating effects. Why not choice A? Actin depolarization is mediated by Clostridium difficile. And how I remember that is difficult people act up, right? They act in, act in. Clostridium difficile or Clostroides difficile. Cytotoxin B. Inactivation of L choice C was wrong because its elongation factor 2 obviously is caused by 2. And we've learned that from the previous question. Elongation factor 2 by C. diphtheriae and Pseudomonas aeruginosa or Carinobacterium diphtheriae can cause non-healing ulcers, but it does not cause rapid onset of necrosis and gas formation. Just remember, cutaneous diphtheria is marked by non-healing ulcers. I forgot to go over choice B. Clostridium perfringens uses carbohydrates for energy. Its rapid metabolism, though, is caused by the breakdown of muscle tissue, right? So it can use the carbohydrates from those, cause this significant amount of gas as they see on the radiographs and CT. The gas is not produced because of carbohydrate degradation. 
So why not choice E? Plasminogen activators such as streptokinase and urokinase, these are enzymes that break down fibrin clots, but only one of which is streptokinase is an exotoxin that's released by what organism? Pop quiz. It's released by streptopyogenes or group A strep. And that's why group A strep causes a skin infection that's usually marked by spreading or non-purulent cellulitis, not gas gangrene. Obviously, choice F is inhibition of presynaptic acetylcholine release, which is caused not by clostridium perfringens, but botulinum toxin. It also causes cranial neuropathy and descending paralysis. If it's staph aureus, right? Staph aureus can hyperstimulate your T-cells, and that's what choice G is about. It's not staph aureus, obviously, because staph aureus causes purulent cellulitis, it's not rapid onset, and it doesn't cause gas gangrene. So Clostridium perfringens, guys, has two types of toxins. One of them is an enterotoxin, and the other one is this alpha toxin or lecithinase. If clostridium perfringens gets into contact with oxygen, it turns into spores. It gets into your wound and it develops from there. Clostridium perfringens is really a dangerous bacteria because it can live in spores for like a very long time, practically forever, right? And once it gets in your tissues, within hours, it can cause widespread necrosis hemolysis and people die from this within a few hours or their legs have to be amputated. It requires prompt and complete surgical excision of the necrotic tissue and sometimes you have to amputate it. You have to pump the patient up with high dose antibiotic treatments such as penicillin V or clindamycin and sometimes you have to give additional broad spectrum antibiotics just to make sure it doesn't spread even further. And a lot of times these patients have to be placed in hyperbaric chambers that contains 100% oxygen to make sure that clostridium perfringens is really getting attacked with that 100% oxygen. So why is clostridium perfringens so afraid? of oxygen it's an obligate anaerobe it doesn't require o2 to thrive it lacks a certain enzyme and that enzyme is catalase or superoxide dismutase oxygen is toxic to them when clostridium perfringens can either be in reheated food and cause food poisoning which is mild symptoms and can resolve without antibiotics but when clostridium perfringens get into the wound you can have gas gangrene within hours Congratulations, this concludes our chapter two of USMLE Listen Step One Microbiology. As always, please email us at usmlelisten at gmail.com for your questions, anything you need clear, or suggestions on how we can improve and initiate your auditory learning for the USMLE Step One. Sources for USMLE Listen include First Aid, Osmosis U World, and Kaplan Study Guides. This is Mark Labella. You can follow or message me on Instagram at Mark J Labella. That's M A R K J L A. B-E-L-L-A. See you on the next episode for your auditory learning here at USMLE Listen.